This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner, as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would ready our hearts to receive it, that we would know as your people, as your church, who we are in you, and what you have placed us on this earth to do, that we would, as we look at uh, this teaching concerning your church in the book of Acts, that it would speak to us and inform uh, how we are to reach the world with your gospel and how we are to live before your face. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we today begin... A new year. I'm changing things up a bit. I will continue on in the book of Genesis, but I will be doing so in the evenings. And we will begin a new series today for our morning services for the book of Acts. We recently finished looking at John in the evening services. And this book is essentially a follow up, a sequel to all of the Gospels. It's particularly to Luke's Gospel. We'll talk more about that here in a moment, but it is essentially picking up the story of the church, uh, 
from the time of Jesus' departure from this earth and going on from there, a work that continues now even down to the present day. So where did the church come from? What is her story? We come to church every Sunday. Most of us have probably done that our whole lives. But the church did not just fall out of the sky one day. It has a story. It has a history. It began somewhere, and it is going somewhere. Now, as we have seen, as we've looked at Genesis and other texts in the Old Testament, the church is not merely a New Testament creation. There is a unity and continuity of God's people from the beginning of the world until its end. But with the coming of Christ, with the incarnation, and with Christ's atoning work, his life, his death, his resurrection, the people of God take on a new form, a form no longer confined to a particular tribe in a particular place as it was in the Old Testament, the time of the nation of Israel. The purposes and presence and goals of the church are bigger and broader. The fact that we are here today worshiping God in a land that few would have even known of in the time of Christ. The fact that most of us are not Jewish in any meaningful sense means that this purpose and objective for the church has come to pass. So the question is, how did we get here? Where did we begin? And that is why we turn to the book of Acts. As Genesis begins to tell us our family history in the Old Testament, Acts is the beginning of our family history in the New Testament, picking up at the end of the Gospels and showing the, growth, the beginning and early growth of the church. In Acts, we see where we came from, how we got here, why we are here, and what we are to do. And so I want us today to look at this opening to the book of Acts, the first 11 verses, and we will do so in three points. First, there is a preface in verses 1 through 3. The book itself and its author and its general purpose are introduced. And then second, we see promise in verses 4 through 8. Jesus, in his final moments with his disciples, tells them what they are going to receive from him and what they are going to do. And then third and finally, we see a parting in verses 9 through 11. Jesus ascends into heaven. His disciples are to prepare for what is next. So preface, promise, and parting, these are our points for today. So we begin with the preface in verses 1 through 3. As I said, Acts is essentially a sequel to the Gospels. Particularly, it was written by Luke, the author of the third and longest of the Gospels. Luke was the beloved physician. He was a doctor. He was a co-laborer and traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Now, Luke's gospel was not an eyewitness account like Matthew or John. It was compiled, it was assembled from various historical sources and eyewitness testimony. Luke wasn't there, but he took a more empirical and observational approach to writing. He was more of a typical historian. He went around, he talked to people, he gathered documents and wrote his gospel from that. It's true of his gospel. It's also true of about the first half of Acts. He wasn't present for those events. But then about halfway through Acts, Luke does actually appear 
and is a part of the story. But again, the first half would be assembled from the various historical records. This included probably talking to the people that were there, the apostles. Now, why did Luke, moved by the Holy Spirit, write this book? Well, in this book is essentially set forth a history of the early church. But it is more than a history. In verse 1, Luke addresses Theophilus. It's the same recipient at the beginning of Luke's gospel. His name meaning lover of God. Now, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he was addressed as most excellent Theophilus. He probably was an important person. He very well may have been Luke's patron, the one who funded and supported this work of writing these books. But also in this prologue, Luke makes a very important point. He talks about all Jesus began to do and teach. So what this means is that Acts is a continuation of what begins in the Gospels. Jesus writes of all that Jesus began to do, meaning that Jesus is going to do more. The Gospels are the beginning. They're not the whole of the story of Jesus recorded for us in Scripture. Although Jesus will be physically absent from most of this book, in fact, we see his ascension here in the very first section. This does not mean that Jesus is gone or that his work is done. No, the book of Acts is the story of how Jesus continued to work by his word and by his Holy Spirit to build the church. And what a history it is. This book is going to begin with a handful of people who believe in Jesus in Jerusalem. But by the time this book ends, there are churches planted all over the Mediterranean world. There are converts being made of all tribes, tongues, and nations. And the gospel will even reach the court of the emperor in Rome. So this book is commonly referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. And it's true enough, most of the book is dealing with what the apostles said and did. But more than anything, it is a book of the Acts of Jesus Christ through his word and spirit in the church. Now, in Luke's gospel, he recorded the events of Jesus' life all the way up to his ascension. There's a little bit of overlap between the two books. This included recording Jesus' post-resurrection appearances and proofs. When we looked at those in John, I did mention some parallels in Luke. One of those appearances was when Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. In that discussion, Jesus revealed himself as being raised from the dead, but he also explained how all of the Old Testament scriptures, so beginning with Moses, those first five books that Moses wrote, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and all of the prophets, which would have been all of the rest of the Old Testament books, according to the Jewish classification. So all of the Old Testament concerned Jesus, taught about and anticipated Jesus. We saw the same thing last week on Sunday evening. If you were here when I looked at the passage from 1 Peter 1, we saw Peter describe how the Old Testament prophets recorded the things they did, not for their own sake, but for ours, they were about the glories that were to come in Christ. When Jesus appeared to his disciples in that locked room in Luke 24, 
He spoke to them. He said, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So again, this comprehensive look at the Old Testament concerning me. And then after that, it's recorded that Jesus opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So what we see here is we see all of the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Christ. But we also see that as a thread that continues to run through the book of Acts. We'll see in many cases where the Old Testament is cited and used to describe not only Christ, his person and work and his incarnation, but to describe the very events that are unfolding as the ascended Christ builds his church in the world. As I said before, Acts is the history of Christ building his church by his word and spirit. There is a tendency by many to look at Acts and only focus on the work done by the spirit, the tongues, the prophecy, the miracles, and so forth. But there is a loss of the emphasis on the word as it is fulfilled and unfolding, even as that's recorded here in the book of Acts. Pentecostals, after all, take the, move, the name of their movement from Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, but they misunderstand what Pentecost was for. We'll come to that in more detail when we get there. But I bring this up for now to say that this is not merely history in the book of Acts. It is redemptive history unfolding. It is the word of God continuing to be fulfilled and revealed for the benefit of us and illuminated to us by the Holy Spirit, even to us, Christ's church, continuing down to this very day. So we have seen in this preface why this book is here. It is here to be a continuation of the gospel, a continuation of the work of Christ by his word and spirit to build his church. But now we turn to our second point, which opens the narrative of this book, a promise in verses 4 through 8. We see that Jesus is together with his disciples. In fact, it seems he is gathered with them for the last time, at least on this earth. He is about to ascend into heaven. They are gathered there on the Mount of Olives, and he's giving his last words. As was also recorded at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus commands his disciples to stay in Jerusalem for a time. There's something coming in the days ahead for which they need to be present. Specifically, they are to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is a, this is a recalling of the words of John the Baptist. I'm sure those of you who have come in the evenings remember over a year ago when we talked about John the Baptist and what he said. Don't worry, I'll remind you. <laughs> in all of the Gospels is recorded some version of John the Baptist saying that he baptized with water, but one who was coming, that being Jesus, who would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus here declares to his disciples that this is imminent. This is about to happen. Now, this does raise a question. Does this mean that the disciples or others who came before them did not have the Holy Spirit? For instance, we saw in John chapter 20 how Jesus breathed on his disciples after the resurrection and told them to receive the Holy Spirit. 
We see all over throughout the Old Testament how the Holy Spirit was present and working. We see in creation in Genesis 1 how the Spirit of God hovers over the deep, is working in that work of creation. See other accounts throughout the Old Testament where the Spirit of God works and fills and does things. So it is not as though the Holy Spirit, who is with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God, has just been absent or not doing anything until now. And yet in Acts, in the building of the church, we see the Holy Spirit poured out, filling, baptizing in a new and powerful way that has not been seen before. And that is what Jesus is telling his disciples to wait for. And we'll see this in future installments when we get to Pentecost in chapter 2. But then after this, we get a question from the disciples back to Jesus in verse 6. They ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is a fair question. The disciples often get bashed and criticized by many scholars and commentators for asking this question, but I think it is actually a fairly reasonable question. Because Jesus often through his life and ministry spoke of himself as a king building a kingdom. Of course, there was often confusion as to the type and nature of the kingdom Jesus was building. In John, we saw multiple instances where people wanted to take Jesus and make him an earthly king, even by force. But Jesus eluded them. He didn't want that. At his trial before Pilate, Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world. So in other words, although Jesus was the king, he was the Davidic king to reign forever, he didn't come to reestablish the nation and the monarchy of Israel to its prior glory. He came to build a kingdom of a different sort, much larger in size and scope than a strip of land in the Near East. But not yet. And that explains Jesus' kind of almost vague answer he gives to the disciples here. It's not for them to know the times and seasons appointed by the Father. They'll know what they need to know when they need to know it. In fact, they'll know very soon when the Spirit comes to them at Pentecost, they will have a new and powerful understanding of the kingdom Christ is building. But not yet. Not while Jesus was still with them. Now, some will take Jesus' response to this question here, as well as some of these other texts I've mentioned, and concerning the unworldly and otherworldly nature of Christ's kingdom, and they try to absolutize them to the point where people will believe and teach that Christ's kingdom is in no way interested in the kingdoms of this world. This is where you get a, a more radically distinguished two kingdoms doctrine that's often taught in our day. They'll say things like how the church ought to distance itself from politics and the work of nations, that the church has no role in any of that, and that Christians shouldn't be caring about or focused on these things. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom like the ones we know and understand, but earthly kingdoms and kings do remain subject to his ultimate divine authority. 
The command of Psalm 2 for all earthly kings to kiss the sun remains. All kingdoms are under his rule. They're subject to his word, particularly his moral government as set forth in his moral law. The Ten Commandments, the two great commandments. Many like to cite passages like Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, as commanding basically unlimited submission to authorities by Christians while disregarding the fact there that Paul calls the authorities there his servants, servants of God. The word used there is actually deacon. The civil authorities are deacons of God. And that text assumes and expects that the authorities are going to promote good and punish evil. And good and evil are not abstract and relativistic concepts. They are set forth in God's law. That's how we know what is good and what is evil. So all of that to say, Jesus' words here don't reject or abdicate any interest in earthly kingdoms or kings, but it does put them in their proper place. They matter, they're important, and as Christians we have duties and obligations and expectations of them, but those are secondary. The most important and significant kingdom In fact, the kingdom which earthly kingdoms ought to protect and help is the Church of Christ, which will come into view in this book. We'll even see the gospel going forth to kings and rulers and leaders. We'll see it transforming cities in various ways. But the ultimate goal and purpose of all of it is the eternal kingdom and the salvation of souls, a kingdom which transcends the things of this world and will be there long after this world is over, long after Israel is over, long after America is over. So Jesus does not here reveal the full nature of his kingdom to his disciples, but he does tell them what is going to get them there. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus is not revealing the what or the when of the building of his kingdom, which is in fact going to take all the rest of human history to answer, but he is revealing the how. It will be by the power of the Holy Spirit working through these disciples and those who will come after. And he does at least begin to clue them in on the where. Of course, the answer to that is everywhere. Once the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon these disciples, they will be his witnesses. They'll start where they are. They'll start in Jerusalem, but they'll branch out from there. They will also be Christ's witnesses in Judea, that region surrounding Jerusalem, and then Samaria. Now that's going to be a tough sell for some people. We've talked about the Samaritans before. They're Hated by the Jews, they were the treasonous half-breeds and idolaters. But Jesus purposes to save them and incorporate them into his kingdom. Jesus himself ministered in Samaria at times, and his church is going to be built there. But that's still just the beginning. We're going to get all of that in just the the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. But then after that, they're going to be Christ's witnesses everywhere else to the ends of the earth. In the book of Acts, they'll go all over the Mediterranean world. 
And then those who come after them will keep the work going to the ends of the earth. How did the church get here? How did God's word get to South Dakota in 2023? The answer is this story is still unfolding. It's not unfolding as inerrant and infallible scripture as the book of Acts is, but this kingdom work, this building of the church is still a work in progress and will be until Christ returns. So we've seen the preface, which introduces the book, and then we've seen the promise of what Jesus will give his disciples to fulfill the kingdom work he gave them. Now we come to our final point for today, the parting in verses 9 through 11. So after Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, they watched him be taken up into heaven, out of their sight. They were not going to see Jesus anymore, not in his human body, which he still had, still has even now, but he has gone into heaven. He was transferred from this realm, this age, to the realm of the Father. We see that during his ascent, he is, he is obscured by cloud. Where he goes is not to be seen by man. John Calvin comments on this. He compares it to the smoke before the door of the tabernacle in the time of the law. What is basically meant by this is that where Jesus is gone, that's not for us to inquire into, not for now. There's coming a day and a time where we will be there where he is, but for now, we have other things on which we need to focus. The age of Jesus being physically and bodily present has come to an end, but the age of him being present and working by his word and spirit is about to begin. But for now, the disciples don't really seem to know what to do. They just stand there looking. I mean, can you blame them? They just saw Jesus bodily ascend into heavenly glory. Maybe they figure, well, there'll still be more to see. But they are not to remain there staring into heaven, staring into the things that it is not for them to know. We see that two men, two angels in human form appear. They rebuke the disciples. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Basically, what are you guys doing? You have other things that you need to be doing. But then they also give revelation of the future. They say, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus, at least physically and bodily, is gone, but not forever. Just as he went, he will come back. There's going to come a time where Jesus will split the sky open and return over Jerusalem. And when he does, his people, whether the living or the dead, will go to be with him. Now, perhaps the disciples thought this would happen quickly, maybe even very quickly as they stood there. Maybe that's why they kept looking. But it doesn't happen very quickly, at least not in human terms. In fact, these disciples don't live to see it. All who have lived since then have not lived to see it. There's a good chance we won't live to see it. But that's okay. We have things for us to do in the meantime, and eventually Christ will return and take us to him. 
So as we live and labor in Christ's church, just as those disciples were about to do, we can have hope and confidence and expectation because although we don't see Jesus now and we don't know when we'll see him, we know we will see him. We know he'll come back for us and take us to where he is. But the question is what happens in the meantime. For these disciples, they will return to the city, they will wait, they will pray, they will take care of some other business, but just days after this, the power of the Holy Spirit will fall on them so that they might carry out this commission that Christ has given them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. That work is ongoing even now in the church, even here in Hamill, South Dakota. But in order to better understand this work, the work to which we are called, the work to which we are a part, we will look at this book that tells us how it all began. We'll see how we are a part of this work of Christ, which continues throughout the world even now. Of course, most fundamental to this work is the spread of Christ's gospel, the good news of Jesus and how he fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf because we as fallen and sinful people could not. He suffered and died in our place so that by faith in him we might have forgiveness and salvation and everlasting life. So that when Christ returns as he is gone, he'll be coming back for us and we'll be with him and our faith will be sight. So if you have not received Christ today and are not resting upon him as he is offered in the gospel, the call for you is to receive him and repent and believe by faith today. For those of you today who are in Christ, recognize that you are a part of something, something much bigger than us, something begun in Christ being accomplished by his Holy Spirit and continuing until the end of the world, the building and furthering of Christ's kingdom through the church. And we all have our part to play in this. So may we all do our part, worshiping God as he has called us, loving and serving others, participating and supporting the work of taking the name of Jesus where it has not been heard. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word you've given us. We thank you for this kingdom that you are building, this kingdom of your church. And we thank you that uh, though Christ is physically and bodily absent from us, he is with us by his word and spirit to help us and to comfort us, to save us, and to, to deliver us unto everlasting life. But in the meanwhile, as we remain in this world, I pray that we would be faithful to what you have called us to do, to love and serve one another as your people, to worship you as you have called us to do, and that we would um, remain faithful and be kept in your word and your will until Christ returns. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. 
That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.